Today on Keep Classical Weird, the latest in our Not Dead Composer series, Kirsten Volness had a relatively easy revelation that put her on the path to composition. I enjoyed the time I spent playing around with music on my computer or on the piano more than I did hitting myself in the practice room for not never being good enough kind of thing. Yep. So, so that was a pretty easy transition, too, to decide that I'd <laughs> rather be a composer. Welcome, friends, to episode 47 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and today we're talking with not-dead composer Kirsten Volness. Kirsten's music is really remarkable. Much like you'll hear in our conversation, the ideas in her compositions come to her really naturally, and her emotive voice is wonderfully clear. It's very easy to connect various moods to her work. And it allows for an experience that feels like it's letting you glide forward on your own rather than pulling you along. Her latest album, River Rising, is available on Bandcamp. Here's a tiny snippet of the first track titled Alone Together, followed by our lovely conversation. Enjoy! I grew up in rural Minnesota, and I my parents had an upright piano in the house. It's actually behind me right now. Um, and I started taking piano lessons when I was four, just because I was very much interested in it, and uh, from the local music teacher in town. And uh, from there, I played in middle school band, alto and tenor saxophone, and started playing in drumline. So I learned a bit about percussion, and actually taught my high school drumline for a little while. Um, and from there I went to college. I always knew I wanted to do music, so it was pretty easy. <laughs> there was no questions in my mind. Um, though I did almost get a psych degree just in case as well. What, you almost just in case? Like, did you take I was classes, double but major. you didn't? Yeah. Wow, that's an I, intense double major. Yeah. But I had, <laughs> I actually started college in, uh, the junior year of my high school because they had a really great post-secondary program in Minnesota. So I was taking full-time college classes three days after my 16th birthday. So I felt like I had a head start. <laughs> that's um, very cool. It didn't end up working out as, as such, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> and so I thought I'd be a piano performance major and I really loved my teachers and, um, didn't really think about what my future career would be at that point. But I took this orchestration class in the junior year of college that was taught by Judith Lang Zaymont. And she is a composer who has been championing, championing the work of women composers 
her entire life, basically. Um, and she was very supportive and encouraged me to try writing my own music for that class. And I did. And that changed everything because I found that I spent, I enjoyed the time I spent playing around with music on my computer or on the piano more than I did hating myself in the practice room for not never being good enough kind of thing. Yep. So, so that was a pretty easy transition too, to decide that I'd <laughs> rather be a composer. Um, so I applied to literally the two graduate schools my friend told me were good, which was the University of Michigan and New England Conservatory. And somehow they allowed me to take, you know, get the master's degree at Michigan. They let me in. I mean, I sent them like three scores with no recordings and a post-it note that said, I'm new to this. I don't really know <laughs> what else to send you. Wow. Please give me a chance, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that changed the opportunities I had from there on, I guess. And so I did my master's and doctorate at Michigan in composition and kept playing piano for myself more than anything, would play my own pieces sometimes. And then when I met some folks who were starting an ensemble in New York called Hotel Elephant, they asked me to play in their band. So I became a performer again after avoiding it for quite some time because I thought I should focus on composition. Wow. It sounds like you got to composition then later than some other, you know, composers that I've interviewed who are like, I, I can remember when I was three and I made my first composition on the piano and it was three notes, but it was really fun, you know? Um, but it sounds like you, did you attempt at all to write your own music in any way before um, your teacher encouraged you in college? I mean, I did a little bit of overdubbing on my tape recorder as a kid, just making stuff up, um, nice. playing my Casio keyboard in the basement, that kind of thing. Excellent. But I was usually <laughs> just picking out songs by ear more than composing. And uh, my dad always encouraged me to do it, but I was resistant. <laughs> I think there was, um, I was more interested in creative writing, actually, as a teenager and in early college. So there was more poetry coming out of me than music, but... I think it translated, you know, all the things I learned about writing poetry definitely helped me write music later. So I was going to say that seems like that would be kind of a, a good bridge between definitely. where you were. Yeah. As a kid and then where you are now. That's so cool. So then you may be able to remember your very first composition. Yes. First. Can you tell us about it? Um, I think it was a piece for string orchestra and I'm very much into I don't know, I guess I was into minor keys, that kind of sound and kind of video game music is how I would describe it. It was very playful, but also kind of creepy and dark, you know, in terms of the timbres I was using and the low strings. And so I guess that would be the first composition <laughs> I can claim. Um, Amazing. Did, did it have a name? Did it have a title? What was it called? <laughs> I think it might have been Acluophobia, which is fear of the dark. Oh, cool. Right. So there's I love my psychology it. connection too. <laughs> I was going to say that's, uh, and what, from what I hear, both composers and conductors, especially like to be very broad in their interest in their learning because everything um, seems to kind of inform their main focus, everything else that they can learn and grab from the world. That's, that's something that you identify with too? A hundred percent. That's actually what I love about being an artist is that I can go down a deep dive ex being excited about, you know, theoretical physics or about, usually it's a scientific sort of thing, or um, sometimes it'll be historical s content, you know, stories from the past that I'm excited mm -hmm. about. 
That's exactly why I love being a composer, <laughs> because it's not just about the music at all. It's about starting conversations and exploring different ideas and finding ways to express them in a different medium. That's wonderful. And I want to continue down that road, but I have to take a sidetrack and ask what video game music you were inspired by. Oh, it would have been like Atari and Commodore 64 sort of stuff. Um, there you go. Journey. <laughs> I remember that uh -huh. one because it actually had the Journey song in the title theme. Um, and <laughs> so a lot of 8-bit sort of Mario. I loved that Tetris B theme. That was the yes. best. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's wonderful. And it's, I'm, I'm sorry, we haven't become friends before now, but now we are. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, those are the magic words you have to bring up to be like, let's talk about video game music. Um, we'll do that for another podcast. So, <laughs> so you, um, you're talking about, you know, composers kind of get to, I think you use the term start the conversation. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Definitely. So can you tell us, this may be a very broad question, so you can answer it as specifically as you want from I don't know, concept of a piece to completion and maybe even performance. Can you kind of walk us through your usual process? Yeah. Uh, I would say for most pieces, it starts with some sort of non-musical idea. Occasionally, it'll be very explicit in the sense that I need to write a grant proposal, like what's your piece about? <laughs> so sure. Usually those feel a little bit less um, organic in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish. Sometimes, like for instance, one piece started by, was sort of triggered by me looking into a bush full of sparrows that were very cold in winter and just like the way they were sort of shivering. The gesture of that gave me a musical idea that started the piece. Um, oh, wow. A lot of times it's related to movement and energy, that kind of a thing, but uh, could be more uh, like <laughs> more specific things like events. Uh, River Rising, the title track from my album, was inspired by the video that I saw of the tsunami in Japan completely wiping out a community. And I didn't sign up for that. I just sort of turned on the news and it happened. <laughs> A lot of it is just things that I react, I find myself reacting to in a specific, in an important way. And those things will be the beginning <laughs> of what so then it's not becomes like you're... something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, it's not like you're specifically seeking it out. It's just kind of things that, that come past you in, in everyday life. And this is kind of how you interpret them. Yep. Unless it's the cool. type of thing where it's a commission that's supposed to be about something specific or, you know, if it's just me making up music, <laughs> it's it's definitely whatever I notice around me in the world that is striking or it, 
exciting or interesting. So oh, one wow. piece I wrote was inspired by, uh, this is a local story, Oregon State University discovered a new pigment called Yinmin Blue in, I want to say, 2009. And I just saw a picture of it and it blew me away. Like, what an amazing color is that? You know, I need to learn more about this. What is happening here? And I have, I'm have i interested in environmental issues as well. And I realized that in reading more about it, it happens to be a very useful material for reflecting infrared. And so it can keep our ah. materials cooler and help <laughs> mitigate global warming potentially. And it's neat to find little connections like that between all of my various interests. So, Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. So so the spark hits you, you know, your inspiration hits you, the, the, the Yinmin blue, which I have to look up. That's awesome. Um, and, or the sparrows shivering or, okay. So what happens next? You say, oh, I have to translate this into music. So what's your next step? I often have an ensemble already in mind. Oh. Instrumentation. Cause a lot of times it'll be like, I need to write a piece for these five people. <laughs> and, uh, what am I going to do with that? Um, Sometimes the instruments themselves in inspire the ideas. You know, if I have a double bass, that'll give you different options than if I have only flutes or something. Um, and a lot of times I write the piece from start to finish. I don't really do massive edits or rearranging of anything. It's very much intuitive. Um, oh, wow. And so I'll usually start with a melody uh, or a textural idea, like a piece that I wrote recently starts with just some rolling on a vibraphone. <laughs> so it's more of an atmospheric approach. Um, and from there, it just sort of builds itself and I fight with it <laughs> along the way. Sorry. I feel like, uh, you know, I'm a kind of composer where I don't know if this is how most composers feel, but I tend to be very dissatisfied with the work that I'm doing at the time. I'm like, this isn't quite what I want. This isn't quite right. I need to make it better somehow. Um, and the more I do it, the more confident I feel that what I'm doing is actually going to work. But um, there is always that feeling of like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I think once I get started, everything else opens up like the piece has, I have some sense of where it wants to go, what it wants to do, what we're really going to accomplish, where that payoff moment might be. <laughs> like if you're building yeah. ideas. Um and sometimes it helps me to draw pictures of it. Sometimes it helps me just to write down adjectives and I like kind of descriptive words for what I want it to do next. Um, but mostly I just, you know, instead of writing things on paper, I'll usually just type it right into the computer program. And uh, sometimes I'll actually record things. If I'm doing electroacoustic music, I tend to improvise and, you know, we'll sort of overdub different layers um, or be more... <laughs> you know, do it, combine things in more of a structural editing way where I'm like working with certain samples and really processing them a bunch and dealing with very small snippets of sound that I'm arranging. Uh, but that's very time consuming. And <laughs> so a lot of times lately, at least, it'll be more of a performative way of composing versus, um, you know, building the architecture. <laughs> Otherwise. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like quite a, I mean, it's interesting. I find there's a lot of parallels when I'm learning a piece where as I'm learning it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't sound like I want to sound like, what am I doing? Wrong? Yep. <laughs> I don't like it. Let's change it. So that's, so that, you know, that, um, 
hating yourself in the practice room, there's still a little bit of that. That's, oh, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So then once it's okay, so you've got it, you know, that it's beginning to end, you've got your whole arc of the piece. And then when you're collaborating with whoever's performing your piece, which sounds like sometimes it's you, mm-hmm. right? Most so, of the time um, it's not. <laughs> most of the time it's not. Okay. So when you're performing with people um, and collaborating with them about your piece, does it end up getting changed as you hear it from the performers? Or is it just like, oh yeah, that's actually my final product and finally it's come to life? I would say if anything, it becomes more magical, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Hmm. A lot of times they will do things I didn't expect. Maybe I wasn't communicating as clearly as I should have in the score or... um, you know, they'll experiment with something and it makes it twice as good or, you know, like it really adds this layer that I hadn't considered. And I would say that happens more often than not. There are occasionally times where something just doesn't work and I have to fix it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But most of those times I will ask the performer ahead of time, like, are you, is this going to do what I think it's going to do on your instrument? Um And then there's always balance issues you might need to consider when you actually hear them playing together in a room. Um, But I would say all in all, I gain more from their interpretive, you know, like the, the layer of interpretation they bring to the collaboration makes it really exciting, (laughs) like way better than what I imagined in my head. What are your favorite instruments or ensembles or voices? Who do you like to compose for? Well, I really like writing songs because I feel like they write themselves in a lot of ways. The structure's already there and the sentiment. And I just sort of have to illuminate it and play around with it. Um, I like writing for mezzo-soprano, I think, because that is my vocal range. And I feel like I can embody it a little bit better as I'm writing it than, than, for instance, a baritone or something. I really love bass clarinet, like sort of smooth, low sounds. I guess that's why I played tenor saxophone and not the other ones. But I also really appreciate the colors that percussionists can make. Like they, they, they're almost like electronic music where you can create any sound you want. Um, so I really love working with percussion too. That's very cool. Yeah. It's uh percussionists almost have like a compositional aspect themselves when they're presented with a score where they, it's asking them to do something and they have a lot of what will make this sound and a lot of experimentation. I feel like there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of parallels Mm -hmm. (laughs) between percussion and composition there. Yeah. This has been a tough question for a lot of people. Can you name the favorite thing you've ever composed? Yes. hundred percent. Yay. (laughs) It is hard to choose between your children or whatever, but I would say (laughs) the most powerful piece I feel like I've ever had the honor of composing was a song. I work with a group called Tenderloin Opera Company that is a houseless advocacy group that does music and theater. This was actually, uh, it's in Providence, Rhode Island, where I used to live. So for the past 10 years, I'd been working with this group and we do writing exercises once a week and whoever shows up, shows up. It's right before a community meal and we have a core group of participants, but also, you know, anybody could wander in and take part. So one day, I don't even remember what year this was, probably like 2014 or something, a woman named Diamond came to our meeting and she had just lost her friend who they found hanging in a tree in one of the local Mm. cemeteries. And the word on the street was that it was a homicide. 
but the police oh, wow. were not investigating it as such. They just somehow decided it was a suicide. So her name was Wendy Tallow. And so that day in that meeting, Diamond wrote a letter to Wendy about, you know, just telling her she loves her and all these things about her last minutes together. And it's an incredible song. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I, it was hard for me in some ways because I really wanted to do it justice. But at the same time, it's all right there. And the way that we sing these things is all as a group, wrong and strong, you know, like there are harmony parts and other things that we tr attempt and it's not a matter of whether it's perfect or not. It's about telling the stories. So that's great. And what a great um, community way of collaboration and um, getting people, because I assume this is, these are people of all different skill levels and all different sounds like from very different walks of life. But they're all coming together for a similar purpose. Yep. To advocate for folks who need a shelter and affordable housing and all of that. What other not dead composers should we be listening to right now? Well, I'm going to go through a list that's maybe names you haven't heard of because I know Great. you all have heard of John Luther Adams, etc. The famous people don't need my help. So I would say <laughs> that I've been listening to a lot of you know, things I think you should listen to. Uh, Anthony R. Green is a really interesting composer who grew up in Providence and lives in the Netherlands now. And he writes, what I love about his music is that I never really know what's going to happen, but I, it's always good. <laughs> the, <laughs> the variety of things he has presented over the years, he even does his own sort of performance art himself. And it's fascinating to me. And I really look forward to seeing all of the new stuff that he's going to create. Intifigus Vizueta is a composer from Brooklyn, and she writes music that is both, you know, I find it really beautiful and vibrant, but what's interesting about her approach, too, is that she's drawing a bit more on her indigenous heritage and, and more of a non-hierarchical approach to writing music, so it can be for flexible instrumentation. A lot, There's a lot more freedom built in for the performers to express themselves um, so we've played a few of her pieces in my band in Providence. Leia Maria Villarreal is this composer who's finishing her doctorate at USC, and she writes a lot of uh, chamber music mostly, but I find her music really fascinating because she makes magic with fairly simple materials. I mean, it's not always delicate, but at, like sometimes it's very intense and textural, but uh, I think she just does a really great job of expressing music, <laughs> musical ideas. And similarly, Car Carolina Aradia is a composer who is Argentinian-American, and she writes a lot of electroacoustic music, and I tend to like all the music I hear of hers. Uh, Elizabeth A. Baker is really fascinating. She does, she's not a composer, she's a new Renaissance artist and does all sorts of, mul you know, has multiple skills <laughs> and abilities and creates a lot of really cool artwork. Um, she wrote a piece for my ensemble, Verdant Vibes, that was called Astatine, inspired by theoretical physics. That's an element that appears and then disappears because of quantum mechanics or, you know. Um, essentially, it only exists for a brief period of time. And so we played an improvised piece in the dark and our phones would light up and that was the cue to tell you to play. Uh, so it was kind of funny because she was sitting in the middle of the audience texting us to cue our phones to light up. And uh -huh. the rest of the folks were so upset with her that she was not paying attention to the performance. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. 
And then I guess I want to also give a shout out to all those local composers that y'all should know, like Andrea Rankemeyer, Lisa Neer, Drew Swatosh, um, Nick Emerson, Kenji Bunch. My students do good things too. <laughs> Kirsten Volness can be found on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, and at kirstenvolness.com. Her new album, River Rising, is available now. And that's our show for today. My deepest thanks to Kirsten Volness joining the ranks as our latest Not Dead composer. Our theme music is composed by Not Dead composer Thomas Barber. Check him out at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and stay weird. <laughs> <laughs>